My guest today uh, on the podcast is Alan Birka, who is the agriculture writer for Bloomberg. And what else do you do, Alan? Uh, yes, my name is Alan Birga. I cover agriculture policy for Bloomberg News here in Washington, D.C., which gives you an intersection of economics, agriculture, and politics, a big part of the policy. Uh, I also teach a class at Georgetown University in journalism and business journalism and basically try to keep out of trouble, which is harder and harder to do in Washington these days. This is Pop Agriculture, the podcast that blends pop culture with agriculture to tell the stories of the plants, processes, and people who have shaped modern crop production, a true farm-to-table connection that puts food into perspective with your passionate plant scientist host, Steve Savage. So you grew up on a farm, right? Yep. And um, what what kind of farm was it? So it was an 80-acre farm um, in the near the geographic center of Minnesota, although I always call it northern Minnesota because it's north of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, we raised sweet corn and we had some sheep with alfalfa. We were surrounded by dairy. Um, like a lot of farms in that area, it has since been bought up by vacationers from the Twin Cities who have horses. Um, and uh, it's, it's family lore. It was not a multi-generation farm. Um, my parents, uh, specifically my father, had always wanted to do farming. They were both from very small towns in the area. My hometown at the time had about 440 people. It's now up to 600 people with a stoplight thanks to the fish plant. Um, the, uh, and so basically my father bought 80 acres of trees and started clearing it for pasture and some cropland. And they bought in 1979, um, right at the peak of the farm boom in the 70s and got those great interest rates and uh, financed it right in time for the bust in the 80s. But my dad was also a state trooper. I mean, this was never our full main source of income. You know, it was always something where, you know, my, my parents would laugh because they would say, you know, we got to hold on to this farm because Alan will want to take it over for the next generation. Ha, 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 ha. About a year after we, we moved to the farm, I got really bad allergies to everything on it, basically. I, um, a lot of, lot of dust and pollen and ragweed and and all those great goldenrod that grow in Minnesota in September ended up, um, you know, doing hay baling with a dust mask when I was a kid. And it was clear that I was not going to be a farm kid. Interestingly enough, my parents sold the farm in the 90s. Uh, my brother, uh, who was very prominent in state FFA, I was never really an ffa -er. he lives in the Twin Cities and does basically nothing to deal with agriculture. And I ended up coming to Washington, D.C., where after a couple twists and turns, I became the agriculture correspondent. And so I'm the one person in the family who still has an active tie to farming. Um, and I joke with my dad. I said, isn't it funny that somebody finally made money in agriculture and it was me, because uh, Bloomberg pays all right, and um, I'm out here in Washington, D.C. doing it. That's funny. But, it, I mean, you didn't sort of leave thinking, oh, I want to go into agricultural it writing. Never, it was never my dream. And and I've talked this with over with people of, you know, my vintage in agriculture. There's sort of a donut hole in who farms in America because, um, you know, there are, of course, the older farmers who, you know, grew up in, with their families and this is the only thing they wanted to do in their life. And then you're also seeing, of course, a lot of people, say, 25 to 40 who, you know, they've seen prosperity 
prosperity in agriculture. They've seen opportunity either through value-added or organic agriculture, or perhaps they went and studied for a bit, and now they're they're actively interested in taking over the farm because they see this as a potential going concern. Those of us who were coming of age in the 1980s during the farm crisis, I mean, going into agriculture was potentially the most suicidal thing you could do. And if you were a parent who truly loved your child, you really questioned whether you really wanted to encourage them to go into this. And so, no, I mean, it was very clear, you know, allergies aside, I was probably meant for some sort of an urban existence. Um, But what I discovered, um, and this was after a career where I had stops, you know, in the Fargo-Moorhead area, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, in Wichita, Kansas, all places in the Midwest where you still have a real presence of agriculture. Um, It was not until I got to Washington, D.C. that it truly became clear to me that, wait a minute, if they say right about what you know, this is my meal ticket. There are not a lot of people in Washington, D.C. who have the background that I have. And in agriculture, this becomes a a competitive advantage as a journalist, quite frankly. And it's also something that's, of course, very rewarding and very fulfilling because literally, you know, I can talk to my dad on the phone over the weekend and he can give me story tips that he saw in the farm and ranch guide for the Dakotas you know, when I'm talking to him. And, and, you know, I can talk about the crop reports very intelligently because, as I've told people, with the exception of 96 when I was in college, you know, I have either covered or lived every farm bill of my lifetime. Um, And that is something that, you know, doesn't only help keep you employed in the sector. It's something to really treasure as well. I didn't realize it when I was growing up. But, you know, there's lots of things you don't realize when you're a dumb kid. Right. Yeah. But, but first of all, you have to agree it's completely mesmerizing once you get involved. Yeah. And also, I would, I would note, and this is an important message for people who are involved actively in production agriculture, you ignore Steve and the Steves of the world at your own risk. <laughs> because frankly, there are not enough people with farm backgrounds anymore. Right. To truly get across stories and to truly explain and understand agriculture without people who share the passion for food and, frankly, are products of the predominantly suburban urban world, which is the one we actually live in. I mean, it's great for me to be in Washington and, you know, inevitably you'll be talking with farmers and farm groups and they want you to establish your bona fides. You know, are you of the farm? And, and I can do that. And that's a great advantage, although then you run into people who are like, well, how many acres was your farm? Well, was it your own means of income? And I'm like, look, you know what? The manure stuck to my boots the same way it stuck to yours, dude. But there's a problem with that bona fide too, and I think it gets agriculture constituencies in trouble, and I see it all the time, is that they get so insular and so obsessed with people's farming credentials that they cut off their nose to spite their face. They lose allies that they could have, And they also um, don't listen to people that they need to be listening to, like they need to be listening to your podcast. How did you end up doing this thing anyway? This the podcast. Why are Why are we here? Who are you? Why are we here? Yeah. (laughs) So I've been working in agricultural field for a long time, and um, around 2009, I was just getting so frustrated with the disinformation that I saw out there. Because, you know, you would be an exception in the sense of actually writing stuff about ag that's true. There's just so much out there that's just not true at all. So I started blogging 
because I had to say something. And then that eventually sort of translated into invitations to give talks and I, you know, sort of had to, th this was basically my anti-career for a long time because I'm a consult. And so any time I spent on this was time I wasn't spending on, on making anything. Um, but how do you know this is not true? I mean, you're not from a farm. How can you know right. any of truths about agriculture? <laughs> well, th the best parts of my job over the years has been projects where I got to go out and interview farmers. And, uh, and I think the nice part there is that it's all different kinds of agriculture because they are so different, uh, specialty crop versus row crop, you know, California versus you know, the Midwest, you know, one of the podcasts that, that I've done is basically talking about the fact that agriculture is incredibly diverse, but then there are certain commonalities that, mm -hmm. that you find with it. That was one of the most striking insights that I gained when I was writing my my book, Endless Appetites, How the Commodities Casino Creates Hunger and Unrest, John Wiley and Sons, published 2011. Back away from that. Um, the um, good ratings on Amazon. The because um, I'm in Africa, okay, and I am talking to guys who are raising passion fruit and guava and pineapples, and they're showing me some of the differences in their trees and and what they're going on with this. And you know, it's very humbling when you get into global agriculture and and even. U.S. agriculture. You talk about California and the Midwest. Look, I can tell you a lot about agriculture on the Northern Plains, and I'm very proud to be from that part of the country because in its own way, it's very diverse. I can tell you a lot about oats and rye and barley and Minnesota, yay, the only state that is top 10 in corn, soybeans, and wheat. But, you know, I go down to Georgia, and good luck. You know, okay, that's a piece of cotton equipment. I, I guess somehow that leads to my shirt. You know, it's, it's, it's very overwhelming. And then you start getting into exactly what you're talking about. You know, people in, in the Midwest taking a look at some of the labor issues in California and then some of the regulatory issues in California. And, you know, it, it, it is amazing just understanding what the different needs and dynamics that people have and how diverse that makes agriculture from a policy standpoint in Washington. Um, as opposed to just the local interest you may have in a state where people all kind of understand where you're coming from. Yeah. So what do you sort of wish people could learn about agriculture that, that you try to get across? In? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, you know, a lot of it is just sort of the basics of, again, what you're talking about, that diversity in the food systems and how much room there is for different tools depending on what different needs are. Now, I can't sit here and pontificate about what I see as right or wrong because that's not my role in the process. Right. You know, I mean, I cover agriculture. One of the great pleasures I get in my job is, is, is that I tell people I'm one of the few people that every camp talks to. They all let me into their homes. Now, they only let me into the front parlor, and it's always been scrubbed up for my arrival because they know I want to go into the laundry and see what's dirty. Um, but they don't want me to do that. But they still all let me into their house, and they all talk to me. And part of what I do is I really try to explain to what is really a predominantly urban audience how agriculture works and 
how and why things are as they are. You know, take for one example, crop insurance. Okay. Um, you go to farming organizations and farm groups and such, and they will say, this is the essential lifeblood of American agriculture. It's also a program that Donald Trump and Barack Obama probably don't agree on a heck of a lot, but both of them submitted budgets with some significant cuts to the crop insurance program. So this, this feeling of essential that agriculture feels toward crop insurance um, is certainly not seen that way outside of agriculture. And, and part of what I frankly do as a member of the media, and remember what media means, right? We are the mediator. We are between the camps, okay? I am trying to maybe get some people in farm country who only talk to one another, to their choirs of the converted, which, by the way, as a society, we are increasingly segregating ourselves into. Right. To get them to understand why both Barack Obama and Donald Trump may have some concerns with the administrations and limits on this program. And I think it's very important for me to under, to explain that to a farm audience because I'm one of the few people who they might find credible who can do that for them. And they need to understand that even if they don't like that because they need to understand they're not being attacked by Martians. They're being attacked by people with a different perspective who have some questions that from their perspective make a lot of sense. Now, going to the non-agricultural country, you have to under explain to things like, well, crop insurance has essentially replaced the ad hoc disaster programs that were being passed every year or two back in the 80s or 90s that were incredibly inefficient and ineffective and politically directed. And you may have some issues with the contour of how this thing is all done, but from from a sense of administering an effective program, there is a rationality to it that is greater than what was there before. So please know the backstory and the context and why this has value. And if I am able to do that, then I have performed, I think, an important service in this community, both inside and outside agriculture, because one of the biggest problems, I think, everyone could say is in America right now is that we don't understand one another. We don't even talk to each other. We don't even interact with one another. I'm in one of the few organizations and one of the few roles where I do interact with everyone from people who really believe that I am the only person pursuing truth, especially if that's the way they want to see it, and the people who are screaming fake news at everything that I try to write. And yet somehow that if you can make progress on that harmonization, maybe you've made a little bit of progress in your own small way of making this a better place. And I did go into journalism with those ideals. So that's what I'm trying to do on this particular day. Sounds very useful. So how do you end up deciding what to cover? Do, do you get assigned um, stories or... You... you know, I'm glad you're asking that because it's a very, uh, it's a very common question and part of the reason I really appreciate the opportunity to talk on this podcast is it's just one more small piece of demystifying news organizations. You know, um, I am... I am very much responsible for generating, you know my own copy, my own ideas. That's what I've been hired to do. I mean, the editors are there to edit. The reporters are out there to go out and figure out what's out there. Um, but of course, you know, there are, within an organization, there are other experts. There are other people looking at things. Um, 
you have a certain responsibility for covering your topic area if there is a congressional hearing that rises to the level of, you know, interest for your audience. And a lot of this is based on your judgment of what your audience will care about. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a person who's writing for a pesticides journal is going to do something that's different than somebody writing for a cattle publication because... One is there to read about pesticides. One is there to read about cattle. I am there to write about business, government, and economics. And so I'm really much looking at the nexus of those issues. There's the stuff that's happening every day that you have to stay on top of because your readers are going to want to know about X, Y, and Z that happened in Washington. But there's also then a lot of time that you carve out for yourself to do more of the enterprise stories, which will often be coming off of, again, those news stories, but they're a little bit of a deeper look and they're more sort of issue-based. Like, you know, August is coming up and there's a congressional recess, which is going to be a really good time to take a look, take a pause and see, okay, what really is happening with immigration and the labor market and policies and how this is affecting harvests that are just getting underway. Um, I'm writing a fair amount about the big story of the evolution of technology and agriculture, you know, be and, and, and both what has been very promising and and that which is struggling for adoption, because even though some venture capitalists in Silicon Valley thinks it's cool, a farmer may be looking at it and being like, okay, great, how does that make or save me money? You know, these are the big questions. Um, I haven't been writing as much about biotech because biotech hasn't had as much happening since there was the GMO labeling agreement. Um, now that is still going on with the writing of the rules and what's happening there. And undoubtedly, I will be revisiting that topic. But at the moment, there's not a lot that you can really hang your news story on. You, you know, you always have to be able to justify why am I writing this story this day? And that day for that story hasn't yet arrived, but I have no doubt that it will. You know, I've been in this area, and I've always lived in Virginia, but I've always worked in downtown D.C. I've been here since September of 2001, which was a heck of a time to show up. So could you estimate how many actual agriculture writers are there even in the U.S.? That is a great question. Um, And I won't give you a clear answer because that's what people in Washington do. (laughs) Let's put it this way. Um, I, so, so you can, I can safely say I've been going to agriculture committee hearings since the fall of 01, early 02. And I would go to those hearings. It's charming to think about that, you know, how we would write our notes on pen and paper and then we would go back to our offices and file something. It's amazing to think about that world. Um, The number of people at those hearings, the number of reporters has not really changed. Who they work for has changed radically. Mm. When I came to Washington, the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, they had agriculture reporters. Agriculture, not food, not like food and farm, agriculture, covering the businesses, covering production, and those jobs all went away. But they got replaced. You know, there's Political Pro, which has several reporters, you know, E&E, Environment you know, and energy, they end up covering a lot of agriculture. Of course, you still have all the farm publications all across the country. I haven't really seen them shutter their doors. They have their their niche and, and they defend that niche well. The, so the number of agriculture writers, I used to be, for one year, I was president of the North American Agricultural Journalists, and we had 150 members. Now, some of them were Canadian. Um, and of course, not every agriculture reporter is um, in NAAJ, but let's say one out of every three are, okay, and we'll round it up. So that would be about 500 people covering agriculture in the U.S. Of course, the bulk of those people are covering agriculture in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, or eastern North Dakota, or the Central Valley, you know. Not trying to do the world. Right, like, right, like right. Trying to do the world, I could probably count on two hands. Um, 
And again, you know, it's job security, but I also think it's um, a sign of undercoverage because it is such a wide and important topic. You know, agricultural constituencies politically tend to hit above their weight because they're very well organized. Agribusiness, even if it's not agriculture itself, the value chain, the supply chain is incredibly important. If you take a look at lobbying numbers in Washington, D.C., um, agriculture is right there with defense. And, and we've been talking about a health care bill all week. Agriculture is very comparable in some years even a little bit more than health care lobbying. So take, so, so take that, you know. I mean, if the farm bill got the attention that the health care bill did, well, I mean, there'd be a lot more people reporting on it, wouldn't there? It's, it's incredibly wrenching technological change that has brought huge changes to the profession. Uh, I don't think it has... Um, I, it definitely has not detracted from the importance of good journalism and good journalists and people who do try to be welcome in all the rooms and respectful to the rooms while still trying to seek in some sort of fashion truth, um, which is an old-fashioned ideal, but one which I do not believe we should ever try to get rid of because I think if we did, the social, the social consequences would be catastrophic. Well, and we certainly need truth about Something right. as important as food. Right, right, uh, right. I mean, you know, well, it's... and everybody's got their own idea of what their truth is, you know, but I can say that I am professionally seeking it and I try to not err and I guess if I sin, I sin boldly, right? There you go. That's what Martin Luther said. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It was great to, to talk with you today and uh, I'll be following your, your article. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak here today and, and I hope you get a lot of listeners for this podcast. Welcome to the Adventure of Media. You can follow me on Twitter at GrapeDoc, at G-R-A-P-E-D-O-C, and visit my blog at www.popagriculture.com.